The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to put your finger in some places, I'll read the obvious commandment as we're studying the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. Then I have one verse to, to insert that your bulletin doesn't tell you, Ephesians 4, 28, and then a couple verses from Matthew 6. They're all quite short passages, but there you'll see a thread of continuity, I believe. The commandment we come to today in studying God's Word through Moses to his people is what we would call the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. I would read this word from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, a concise word to Christians who, after all, are new creations with the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They might well have been thieves before they came to Christ Paul writes in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then this word from Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord, may we find the stream of your blessed teaching your life-giving change for us from our natural inclination to desire and take things that are not ours. Teach us your way and to delight in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget reading about 20 years ago of a crime by an individual that had incredibly widespread implications for literally several million people. It was, I believe, in the early 1990s in the small state of Rhode Island where one man's clever swindle paralyzed, briefly at least, a state's economy. The man was Joseph Mollicone, and he managed to obtain some undocumented loans through various cronies at more than one bank in Rhode Island, And those loans, I understand, totaled about $14 million. Mr. Malacone took his money and ran. He left the country, and for quite a long time, nobody knew where he was. 
But meanwhile, back in the state that he departed from, Rhode Island was a state then, I don't know if they still do this, but at that time they self-insured the savings institutions for their state. And the fund that self-insured that, that against losses was dangerously low and could not sustain a hit of $14 million that no one was going to pay back. So Malacone's theft meant that every bank in the state of Rhode Island had to briefly close for a couple of days. I don't know what all financial people do to rearrange things, but after a couple of days they reopened. But you can imagine that during that time, no one had access to their bank accounts in Rhode Island. If you needed cash, too bad. You could not get it. The private citizens were shut out. Businesses were shut out. The entire state was in a temporary uh, number of days of paralysis. And Joseph Malacone became known as the man who picked Rhode Island clean. Well, Martin Luther wouldn't have been surprised about that. 500 years before any of that kind of thing came along, Luther knew how common theft was. And he wrote this once. He said, if we were to hang all the thieves, where would we ever find rope enough? We would need to take our belts and our bridles and make them into nooses. Luther knew, as we all know, what a huge problem theft is in human society. Well, God's commandment to Moses on Mount Sinai anticipated this problem and all of its patterns as it begins in the human heart and works itself out in many different kinds of acts of someone taking the property of another person. So we have the very brief commandment, you shall not steal. Once again, like the brief commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We have to flesh it out. We have to bring definition and application to it. But here's a commandment that speaks not about necessarily our relationship to how we worship God or even exactly how we relate to other people, although it affects other people, but it primarily speaks about how we relate now to physical, material goods and money. And we find the Bible paying in many different places, Old Testament and New, a full respect towards the right of private property. That is implied in the way the the Scriptures protect private property against the malicious intents of other people and the command not to steal it. The Hebrew word for steal is simply a word that means to carry something away. You pick something up and carry it off. Of course, it not being your own property to begin with. And whether that's your first shocking discovery as a child that your bicycle that you left in the front yard overnight was carried away. Bicycle thefts, I understand, are always epidemic because it's such an easily transportable thing and often left around in places accessible to others. Whatever it might be that you first discovered theft in your life, you all know what it feels like 
My wife and I were burglarized way back when I was a seminary student, and I still remember the sense of assault and invasion that that we lost things totaling just a little over $100. Not that huge, but the sense that someone had thought they could simply take what was ours is something you just don't forget. It's said that more than 50% of all crimes investigated by law enforcement agencies have to do one way or another with the theft of property. And just think of the many words that describe this crime. I don't even begin to have a complete listing. Uh, Burglary, embezzlement, house invasion, pickpocketing, shoplifting, usury, larceny, extortion, computer scams, mail fraud, racketeering. There's probably as many more that I didn't mention. Thieves can come sneaking in the night to smash a window and grab something and run off with it. Or they can be perfectly respectable people dressed in expensive business clothing, sitting at a computer terminal and pressing the right button to move thousands of dollars to their advantage. Now, many people today diabolically find reasons to applaud certain thieves. Not long ago, I stumbled on something on the TV where they were going back to what some of you will remember, one of the infamous crimes of the early 1970s, the man known as D.B. Cooper, who took possession of an airplane and parachuted out of it with many thousands of dollars of ransom money that he had demanded somewhere in the wilderness of Washington and Oregon, and they haven't figured out yet what D.B. Cooper did or how he got away with it. And he's kind of a hero. People think, oh, wasn't he clever? There's sort of a Robin Hood syndrome based on, at least on who is being victimized. I read of a school teacher who asked her class what each of them would do if they found a bag containing a half a million dollars. One little boy was, was probably the most enterprising in his answer. He said, well... If it belonged to a poor family, I'd return it. But if it came from a rich man, I'd keep it. Well, you can laugh at that, but isn't that sort of a summary of the way people think today? You know, it's really about who's getting hurt. And as a moral philosopher, that young man said, well, if I judge that it isn't really doing the person harm who lost the money, then it's okay for me to steal. And there are many, many people who at least appear to agree with him if the person losing the money is not actually an individual at all, but the government, that big faceless entity, or an insurance company, another faceless entity, which actually is every one of us. Well, as a first point here, on the topic of the Eighth Commandment, I ask you to think about the Bible's respect for private property. I don't believe necessarily that the Bible argues for one economic system over another, but I would say to you that you would have a fairly hard time proving the idea, the concept of socialism in which all property ownership is actually leveled out for the benefit of the wider masses from the Bible. Maybe somebody would step forward and say, oh, didn't the first Christians have all things in common? Sure they did, but that wasn't a governmental system. It wasn't imposed on them. 
It was the generous sharing of disciples in Christ. But if you look at the big picture of the Bible, while it cannot be said that capitalism is necessarily defended as some perfect economic system, there's no question that the Word of God defends private property ownership when that ownership comes legally and by just means. The Bible doesn't say if you have an estate worth $500,000 and your neighbor has an estate worth $50,000, you need to somehow level it out. That's nowhere taught. We're taught that God himself is the prime and ultimate owner of all things. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything in the earth, the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the creator. He was the original creator of all wealth and abundance. And he graciously allows human beings to become secondary and rather temporary owners of the things that he actually owns. First Chronicles 29 has David saying, Wealth and honor come from you, O Lord. You are the ruler of all things. David was saying, you make it possible for me to have wealth. And Lord, I, I want to constantly remember that, that I didn't get it myself. Now, when Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, you need to remember that important, precious promises made to them through Moses as the Scripture unfolded to them, the promises were you're going to have homes and you're going to have land. And that home and that land is going to be in an abundant place, a place where you can thrive and put down roots and see your families grow. Imagine that promise if you've been a slave in a foreign land, how that would be an incentive to you. And it was an incentive as Israel followed in all those wilderness years. And by their disobedience, they were held back for a whole generation from getting that land and those homes, but they did get them. And then when they did receive them, the Scripture brings all kinds of different case laws and things that are revealed to Israel for their good government, many, many of them having to do with justice and the distribution of wealth and the use of land. Don't move a boundary marker, says the law of God. It's a terrible thing to to have a boundary marker that says, here's the line that divides my property from yours, and you move it. That's theft, and it's punishable. Things like laws against high interest or excessive interest on loans. Things like what to do if your neighbor loses his coat and you just happen to find it somewhere laying out in the field. It's not your coat. And you're to return it. If you would just look to Exodus 22, only two chapters away from Exodus 20 where the commandments are, you'll find some of these case laws being spun out about how to deal with livestock that is lost or, or if, you, if you have a fire and your fire gets out of control and burns your neighbor's house, what are you supposed to do? Pay restitution. There are all kinds of recognitions of what to do about private property. The very prohibition of theft itself assumes the right of private ownership. Now, in New Testament times, 
there were many economic problems and things hadn't really gotten better from Old Testament days. In some ways, under Rome and other rather oppressive regimes, you could say they got worse. The charging of exorbitant interest rates, for example, the profiteering at the temple of God. You remember Jesus coming in and overturning those money tables by people who were literally just preying upon worshipers at God's temple. I read Ephesians 4.28 because I think it's an important summary verse, almost a kind of manifesto, you could call it, for how a Christian disciple is to stand out in the midst of an economy where theft is going on all the time. And again, that verse says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. He must do what? Work. Doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. We could spend a long time just studying the Bible's teaching on work, on the dignity of work. Some people perhaps think that work is something that came out of the fall, and indeed work was affected by the fall, but God gave man work to do before the fall. He told Adam, go and tend the garden. Tend its abundance, reap its abundance, share in the wonders of what I've allowed you to live among. And of course, then it became more difficult, and the soil wasn't going to yield things as easily as a result of the fall. But work is not out of the fall. It's God's original gift. It's God's gift that we might provide and have and build up around us secure property. When we steal goods, we're not only going against God's command to work, we're going against all of God's provisions for human community. If there's going to be a community of men and women living together on the earth, living near one another, there's going to have to be some degree of trust and mutual interdependence where possessions are concerned. If you're always looking over your fence at my horse and saying, wow, does he have a nice horse, I would sure like to get that horse. And then you're plotting to find a way to move that horse into your possession. You're not my neighbor anymore. You've become my enemy. And I would be likewise if I were doing that towards your possessions. You like to hope that your neighbor living in community with you is a person who would join you in being watchful over your possessions. And if he sees an invader coming, would warn you of it. Just think of all the ways in which we have testimonials around us to what theft has done to affect human community. Burglar alarms, security cameras, locks, jails, endless lists of things that that stand as if they were mute testimonials to the fact that human community where things are concerned and theft is concerned has broken down. And that community almost is non-existent. Well, beyond the Bible's respect for private property, I would ask you secondly to think about this. How is a Christian to live when we understand that we live almost as it were among an active, plotting den of thieves every single day? I have a question to ask you, and I want you to respond with, with upraised hand. How many of you here at your church for Sunday morning worship 
at a place where you would think would represent trust and safety and everything else. How many of you, just head of the family, raise your hand, have your car locked in the church parking lot? Did I make my point? Actually, it's a good thing that you've done that because there are some of us here that would tell you that cars have been victimized by people preying upon these things. They think, oh, there's a bunch of dumb people all in the church not paying attention. Let's grab what's in their cars. But isn't that a mute testimonial to the kind of society we have today? We can't even go to the relatively safe place of a house of worship without locking our car. And of course we've been taught you don't drive up to the, you know, the 7-Eleven and run in for 20 minutes of shopping and leave your engine running right outside the door with your recent cash that you've withdrawn from the ATM spread across the front seat. Not real smart. And yet people do it. Once more, Martin Luther, who liked to make observations on these things, talked about the prevalence of theft in his society 500 years ago. And he said this, mankind, he said, is nothing but a vast stable of great thieves. He said some of them are gentlemen swindlers. For far from being sneak thieves who would loot a cash box, they sit in office chairs and are called honorable citizens And yet, with a great show of legality, they rob and steal. Things haven't changed very much, have they? Theft is everywhere. Employers steal from their employees by oppressive regulations and requiring more than is easily bearable by the employee, laying off somebody and then asking another person who wants to keep his job to do the work of the person who's been laid off in addition to their own. But employees rob from their employers, filling out false time cards, wasting their time, loafing around on the internet half of the day. Large corporations. Oh my goodness, I'm not a businessman, but I do read the newspaper. Corporations have so many ways of evading and staying one step away from the government as they keep transactions off the books or manipulate stock values. And now we've got the internet where somebody in the Ukraine or in Nigeria or who knows where can reach out across oceans, never knowing me. I'm nothing to him except a set of numbers that has some cash or or valuables on account. And if he can identify my numbers, he can rob me blind. What a world. What would Luther have said about the fact that our local TV station has one of its uh, reporters who on a regular nightly basis spends time simply going through scams that people fall for and warning them. Don't wire money to strangers, he says night after night. This world full of thieves would become a less threatening place if I, as a Christian, would at least begin to take seriously the perspective that all my stuff, it's one of my favorite words, stuff, all my stuff at the end of the day is only made of dust. 
dust you are and to dust you will return, the Scripture says. We don't believe it. Scripture says it really wasn't your stuff in a permanent sense in the first place. We talk about so-called durable goods today. I think that means in economic terms things that have a, a lifespan of a certain number of years, you know, as opposed to something made of paper that you just throw away right away. A refrigerator, I guess, is regarded as durable goods. But the fact is there are no real durable goods. They're all made of dust. Some dust just clings together a little bit longer than other dust. And you've all known people who have accumulated things, things that may have been of value and many things that weren't really of so much value and their houses filled up and their garages filled up and their rental units filled up and their barns filled up and they had pathways barely through the dining room to walk in between the stuff. And then their children carried the stuff out to a dumpster when they, the individual who saved it all, had returned to dust themselves. Dust you are, and to dust you'll return. That sounds like a gloomy, terrible way to think. But listen, it's really a liberating way to think. It keeps your life from being defined by stuff. Whether your stuff is valuable furniture, antiques, collectibles, stock certificates in a bank uh, deposit box, whatever it is, if it all went up in smoke, would you really, really be poorer? And if you jump to say, of course I would be, think a second time and think a third time. Because a primary alternative for a Christian to live pleasing to God is to be able, among this den of thieves that surrounds us in this world today, they may be on the, the other side of your neighbor's fence, they may be in a corporation you're dealing with, they may be people you'll never see in some foreign country hacking the internet. The way to live among all this den of thieves is first and foremost to know the difference between a supposed owner and a steward. Because a steward understands the critical difference that all the stuff I have really isn't mine and it really doesn't last. And I'm here to handle it while I've got it in a responsible way. I point you once more to Ephesians 4.28 because it would be easy to just hear the beginning of that verse, stop stealing and work, and not hear the conclusion of it. Why? What's the goal? The goal is stop stealing and work so that you may have something to share with those in need. You see how remarkable that verse is? Paul is speaking for Christ here, saying, look, work isn't just about putting a roof over your family's head or saving something up for retirement or being able to buy a decent car. Work is about giving you the liberating ability to give to others, to be a steward, a conduit through whom God's wealth flows to other people. Now, you would probably expect this to immediately uh, take a right turn and go into a tithing sermon, wouldn't you? 
convenient segue if I wanted to do that. But let me tell you, the Bible's teaching about the tithe of our income is not some kind of a device for pastors to pull out and beat their people with to squeeze funds out of their wallets. I can personally tell you, after years of practicing the tithe in my life, that it is one of the most freeing and healthy economic things that I could ever do. Because it gives me a God dependence in the center of my economic life. When I'm faithful with God's portion of the money, what I do with all the rest is changed. It really is. By giving generously, I practically, deliberately make a declaration every week that money does not own me and that I work to be able to share with the people of God and the needy of the world. And I'm, in doing that, I'm stepping away from that anxious, fretful state of existence in which I'm consumed all the time. How can I get more? How can I turn this to my advantage? How can I protect this? Sure, of course, I lock things up as well. I take security measures. I have security protections on my computer, just like you do. And I will not tell you that I have no anxious desires at all about finances. That wouldn't be honest. But I can tell you that the act of giving generously is an act that God knew and understood in a sense, sets me free as a steward. One person said it this way, there are three basic attitudes we may choose to pursue. The first is that of the thief. The thief says, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. The second is the selfish person who says, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. The third attitude is the Christian steward who says, what's mine has really been God's all along. So I'll share from it. That's a completely different way in which to live. Thirdly, today, this commandment not to steal reminds us of this, that every Christian's one secure possession is something no thief can ever touch. And here I look, as you might guess, to Matthew 6. These familiar words. Do not Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now that was not pious advice from Jesus against savings accounts or stock market investments or retirement funds or anything of the kind. But Jesus was saying no where your ultimate treasure is. The treasure that can't be touched by a thief's devices. And what he was saying was practical and it was real. He asked you to look at yourself carefully and say, what do I possess right now that nobody can possibly take away from me? I think this is exemplified in what David wrote in the 16th Psalm. There he is... I like to think maybe David was moving about Lancaster County on a beautiful autumn day like today, you know. And and David wrote, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in a pleasant place. Do you ever feel that way when you drive around this beautiful place that we live? 
Well, David wasn't simply saying, I love Jerusalem, I love Bethlehem where I was born. Thank you, Lord, for planting me on such a pleasant plot of earth because he wasn't just thinking of his earthly situation as he wrote that. We believe firmly he was talking about his spiritual inheritance. In fact, he proves it at the end of that psalm as he ends on the thought of heaven in the 16th psalm. David was thinking about his spiritual inheritance, what 1 Peter 1 calls a hope that is indestructible, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The ultimate possession no thief can touch is your salvation in Christ. And it's the only thing you really have a right to call a treasure. I was thinking about a man who, I don't even remember how long it's been since I preached a sermon about Zacchaeus from Luke 19. Zacchaeus seems to be one of those characters that we sort of save for the children's hour of Sunday school. Everybody knows the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know, our children could all sing that. And he's kind of a nice little children's lesson. The man who, who went up in the tree and saw Jesus, Jesus went to his home and Zacchaeus was changed. Well, let me just remind you about Zacchaeus. This was a sharp businessman. A businessman who evidently had stolen from many people by means that people would have thought, at least outwardly, were mostly legal or looked legal most of the time. And then he met Christ... And in a transforming encounter of faith, he got turned inside out. And the first thing he began to do was give away. It it documents there, Luke 19, he started calling up people and sending them checks. People were, what? You're sending me $5,000, Zacchaeus? Why? Well, because that's really the amount I shorted you with on that land deal. And left and right, he was setting things straight, undoing his thievery. Once he had discovered the lasting treasure of knowing God eternally. Now, we need to stop treating Zacchaeus as if he was a simplistic figure for a children's story. He is an adult convert doing something every adult believer needs to think about doing. Finding our real treasure and investing heart, mind, passion, and everything we have in that treasure that nobody can take away. Once Zacchaeus looked into the face of Christ, he understood that he was a thief. I don't think Jesus pointed his finger and said, you're a thief. He just knew it. The Spirit of God convicted him. And he realized that Jesus receives thieves. He goes and stays at the house of a thief. And this shattering truth came through to Zacchaeus. The thieves can change when they meet Christ. I'd remind you in clothing that on the hill of Calvary, Jesus was executed in between two thieves. The court was satisfied that they were thieves at least. They were brigands, burglars, something. We don't know what they did exactly. But they were called thieves. 
One on the left, one on the right. Both of them on crosses. Both of them dying almost simultaneous with Christ. And you remember how one of them railed at the world, screaming on his cross. I'm sure they had to drag him there, howling the entire way along the path as they put him on the cross. And he howled and howled at the injustice of it all and turned his howling on Jesus. And, you know, think of that. Here you are dying. You know in your own conscience that you're guilty of what you're dying for or what the court has accused you of. And nevertheless, you're protesting and you even protest against a fellow sufferer. He mocked Jesus. And right up to his last painful breath, he was consumed by the fires that the world owed him something that he had never received. Well, the second thief looked on Jesus, and he seemed to understand something that his mind had never guessed was possible before. He looked at this man, and he looked carefully, and he listened, and he thought, here's an innocent man. I've not heard that they said of any specific crime he was actually convicted of, certainly not stealing like me. And in his bearing, in his unmistakable dignity, in his gentle words of forgiveness, this man is absolutely different than anybody I've ever seen before. And you know the story. You know how this second man turned and said, so inexplicably, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, a convicted thief, dying in my guilt. We believe the teaching of the Scripture is that the gate of heaven swung wide for that man. That he invested in that moment in the possession that couldn't be stolen, but once it was his, couldn't be taken away eternal life. And so, ladies and gentlemen, for all of our undisclosed, seemingly respectable manipulations, maneuverings, financial, corner-cutting, all the ways in which perhaps you might be convicted of some undisclosed, unseen, petty larcenies in your heart or in your actions— This Jesus died for thieves like you and me. And he took all my larcenies upon himself. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we would be inclined here just as when we say, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my wife. We would say, I'm not a thief. But we ask, Father, that you cause us to examine ourselves, not in the self-defensive, screaming way of that first thief at Calvary, but like the second one, who sees you in the same place as himself, but innocent, and bearing something that was not his own. Thank you for a Savior who loved thieves. Teach us to examine even the hidden crimes of our own hearts. For Jesus' sake, 
Amen.